G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and today I'll be speaking about a family cohabitation agreement that went very, very wrong. First off, I'm excited about this case because there is a COVID element and I wasn't expecting one so soon. The other reason I'm excited is because I'm going to try to put you in the position of the judge to see how the arguments for each side can be persuasive and hard to navigate. Sometimes human relationships are so complex that criminal law cannot deal with them. Take for instance the situation where parents transfer their property to their daughter. She doesn't pay them anything, she just takes over the mortgage for them. Then she tries to evict them and they will soon be homeless. Is this a case of elder abuse that warrants police intervention, or was there a lot more going on that we need to know about? Transactions between family members are hardly ever clear-cut, and worse, they are very rarely documented. So when something goes wrong, you have both sides giving you their version of events and screaming for justice, and it is up for the court to decide who is telling the truth. The basic version. In 1975, Yuri and Olga Wallace acquired land at 2 Showfield Parade, Pennant Hills, and built a home there, with most of the work done by Mr Wallace, who was a builder. It was the family home where they raised their children. In 2012, Mr Wallace developed a heart condition and had to retire from work. The Wallaces found themselves unable to make their mortgage payments and fell into default on their mortgage. The bank was threatening to take the property. The property was worth approximately $950,000 at the time, and there was an outstanding mortgage which was about $840,000. Sometime in June 2013, Mr and Mrs Wallace discussed their situation with their daughter Suzanne Rudek, and one suggestion was that they would transfer the house to her, she would pay the mortgage, and the Wallaces could live at the property for the rest of their lives. The house contained two self-contained living areas, each with separate access, so it made sense that Mr and Mrs Wallace could live in one and Suzanne and her family could live in the other. A conveyancer helped them with the transfer of the property. The conveyancer acted for both Mr and Mrs Wallace as the sellers and for Suzanne Rudek as the purchaser. On the 16th of August 2013, the property was transferred to Suzanne Rudek and she discharged the mortgage. At the time, Mr Wallace was 68 years old and Mrs Wallace was about 73 years old. Mr and Mrs Wallace continued to live at the property. About two years later, in August 2015, Suzanne, her husband and their three children moved into the property as well. And they lived on the top two floors of the property, with Mr and Mrs Wallace living on the ground floor unit. In February 2018, Susan gave her parents written notice to leave the house. So, first impressions. It looks like Suzanne promised her parents that they could live in the house for the rest of their lives and now she's going back on her promise. The consequences for the Wallaces is extreme. They will be kicked out of their home and they don't have the money to buy another home. Also, given that they can no longer work, they won't be able to get a mortgage to buy another home. The Wallaces started court proceedings against their daughter, seeking to be allowed to continue to live in the house for the rest of their lives. They claimed, first, proprietary estoppel, that their daughter had promised that they could live in the ground floor unit for the rest of their lives 
and they pleaded that they acted in reliance on that promise. The second argument was in contract, that Susan Rudecht had failed to fulfil her contractual obligations because she had not paid them the full purchase price for the property. And finally, common intention, that the property was acquired with the common intention that they would all live there and that this has broken down in circumstances in which it would be unfair for the daughter to keep the whole property. Susan Rudeck made a cross-claim seeking possession of the property, basically seeking a court order that her parents have to leave the property. But before we tar and feather Susan Rudeck for abusing her poor elderly parents and stealing their home out from under them, let's get some more facts. The Transfer At the first hearing, Susan Rudeck admitted that when her father first spoke to her about transferring the house to her, she did indicate that she would let them live there for the rest of their lives. However, at that time nothing was agreed to, and after that discussion her parents looked at other ways in which they could keep the property. They were looking at arrangements with a company called Debt Rescue, but when that fell through, things circled back around to transferring the property to Suzanne, and by the time the agreement was entered into, the promise of accommodation for life was no longer a part of the agreement. A contract was drawn up that had the purchase price stated to be $1,050,000. They had a property valuation that the property was worth 950000 However, the bank wouldn't give Suzanne a mortgage if the property was worth that much. So she obtained another valuation that put the value at $1,050,000, but argued in court that this was only in order to get the mortgage she needed for the transfer, and the property wasn't really worth that much at the time. The contract included the clause that following transfer, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace would be permitted to continue to live in the house under a license agreement for a period of one year, paying $1 a week. Even after the contracts and the transfers were signed, however, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace were still looking for ways to keep the house without transferring it to Susan, still trying to find a solution with debt rescue, but they continued to have no success and the transfer to Susan proceeded. The conveyancer was instructed to draw up a license agreement which permitted Mr. and Mrs. Wallace to occupy the ground floor unit for the one year paying $1 a week and thereafter on a month-to-month basis, meaning that after that one-year period, Susan could give them one month's notice to move out. On the 2nd of August, two weeks before the property was to be transferred, the conveyancer wrote to Mr. and Mrs. Wallace, enclosing the license agreement for them to sign. Five days later, the conveyancer wrote to them again, reminding them to sign the license agreement and warning them that if they didn't sign it, Suzanne Rudeck could evict them from the property whenever she wished. On the 15th of August, the day before settlement, the conveyancer wrote to Mr. and Mrs. Wallace again and stated, I quote, We note that we haven't received a signed license agreement from you. Accordingly, we note that the purchaser can request that you vacate the property at any time. End quote. The Wallaces didn't sign the license agreement, but they also didn't back out of the transfer, which they could have done if they weren't happy with the terms of the agreement. Settlement took place on the 16th of August 2013. The Wallaces had the place to themselves for another two years before Susan and her family moved in in August 2015. Once the parties were living together under the same roof, there were altercations and the police were called to the property more than once. But it wasn't until February 2018 that Susan gave her parents formal notice to leave. One of the sources of conflict between the family members was that prior to buying the house, Susan had asked her father whether there was any problems with counsel because of the work he had done on the house. And he assured her that there was not. 
However, some years before the transfer, the council had issued notice to the Wallaces to undertake rectification works. The Wallaces knew that rectification works had to be done to the property, but they didn't tell their daughter about this before transferring the property to her. Another problem was that prior to the transfer, Susan had taken out a loan for $26,000 for her mother. Mrs. Wallace told her daughter that she would pay off the loan, but also that she would discharge the loan entirely once she had sold her investment property, and in the meantime the Wallaces made those monthly repayments. However, when Mrs. Wallace sold the investment property in 2015, she went back on her word and didn't discharge the loan. Instead, Mr. Wallace bought himself a Mercedes-Benz car, and this loan remained outstanding and in Susan's name. Another source of discord was that Mr. Wallace was verbally abusive of Susan's husband, calling him Rude Dick, a crude adaptation of his name Rudick, and belittling him. Mr. Wallace also interfered with the rectification works that were going on at the property and with the gardening. So while the hired tradespeople would do their job, after they left the site for the day, Mr. Wallace would make changes or undo the work that they had just done. With this attitude that only he should be allowed to do any work on what he still considered to be his property. The Wallaces also had a lot of junk in the drained pool that was supposed to be removed when the property was first transferred. Despite numerous requests for them to clean out the pool, they refused to remove their rubbish. Mr. Wallace also started trouble with his grandson, Steve Rudek, breaking into an external shed which Steve used as a studio and destroying one of his artworks, and following this up with some verbal abuse. So after two and a half years of living with conflict, Susan finally had enough and gave her parents notice that they needed to move out. The Wallaces started these legal proceedings and continued to live in the house while the parties battled it out in court. Witnesses Mr Wallace gave his version of events at the trial. He claimed that the transfer was Susan's idea and that they had instructed the conveyancer to draw up an agreement giving them the right to reside in the house for the rest of their lives. Mr. Wallace was found not to be very honest. When asked if he had any other property, he answered no. It was only when confronted with a property search for Victoria that he admitted that he owned vacant land in Victoria worth about 170000 From 2013, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace also began claiming rental assistance from Centrelink, when obviously they were not paying any rent. Susan claimed that her father was fixated with the Pennant Hills property, and the court agreed. They found that he would say anything if it would get him the property. Mrs Wallace gave evidence, but the court found her to be vague. They did acknowledge that she gave evidence about events that happened six years prior, so it was understandable for her to have forgotten details or gotten some details wrong. In relation to the instructions to the conveyancer, the court found that the conveyancer had put herself in a difficult position, acting for both parties. However, there was no reason to believe that this conveyancer had misunderstood her instructions so badly as to prepare a license agreement instead of a right of residence, as Mr Wallace claimed. On the defence side, Susan, her husband Vass, and her children Steve and Nadia gave evidence. Susan said that the transfer was entirely her parents' idea. At the time, she had her own house with a mortgage of about 100000 and she didn't want a bigger mortgage debt, but she reluctantly agreed to help her parents out. According to Suzanne, once it was clear debt rescue wasn't going to be able to help, she made it clear to her father that she was buying the property on her terms, not his, and that it didn't come with a lifetime agreement. 
For starters, she didn't know if she was going to be able to pay off a mortgage of $800,000. Susan admitted her role in helping her parents cheat Centrelink. She had signed papers that allowed them to claim the benefit. The court found that while this didn't look good for her credit, they could sympathise that her parents put her in a difficult position. The court found that Susan was serious and candid in the witness box and found her evidence to be reliable. The outcome. The Wallace's primary argument was that Susan had promised them that they could stay in their property for the rest of their lives. The court found that there had been no such promise. The judge found Mr Wallace not to be a credible or reliable witness and also found that the evidence of the conveyancer supported Susan's account better. It was clear to the Wallaces at the time they transferred the house that there was no right to reside there for the rest of their lives. After all, they had been asked to sign a license agreement that only gave them the right to live there for one year, paying $1 a week. Interestingly, the court stated that, and I quote, I suspect that the real reason why they did not sign the license agreement is because Mr Wallace knew very well that, if he did, he would be formally accepting something inconsistent with what he wanted. I regret to say that I think that that is probably the sort of man that he is. End quote. Indicating that Mr Wallace knew the agreement didn't include a right to reside for life, but he turned a blind eye to this because it wasn't what he wanted. The court went on to say that even if there had been such a promise, they would not make any orders that would allow the Wallaces to remain in the property. The level of discord and relationship breakdown would just not allow for that. The Wallaces offered an undertaking, which is kind of like a promise to the court, that if allowed to stay in the house, they would no longer make any changes to the rear yard, the pool or trees, and that they would remove their items from the pool. The court found this to be useless because they had no entitlements to those areas in any case, and so were in fact agreeing not to access areas they already weren't allowed to access. It would be like me undertaking to the court not to hang out in the judge's chambers. The court also stated that they did not believe that Mr Wallace could be trusted to change his ways. They found that Mr Wallace had engaged in obnoxious behaviour that unreasonably and substantially interfered with Susan and her family. I think the judge had a lot of sympathy for how difficult it was for Mr Rudick living at the property with his in-laws. The judge said, and I quote, It is not just a question of being called rude names on a few isolated occasions. Vas Rudick is required to share the home in which he lives with a person who, the evidence reveals, takes every opportunity to belittle and humiliate him, including in front of his own family. It is hardly surprising that Mr Rudick chooses, with commendable restraint, to avoid Mr Wallace. No doubt it would be even more convenient to Mr Wallace if Mr Rudick would just move out, but why should he have to? End quote. Interestingly, the court noted that the Wallaces would have had a perfectly good case in contract. After all, even if the property really wasn't worth $1,050,000 at the time of the transfer, Susan had signed a contract stating that she was purchasing it for that amount. They could have argued for her to pay them the outstanding amount which would have been about 210000 plus interest. The court even invited the Wallaces to amend their claim to this claiming contract, but the Wallaces refused to do so. Even at this stage, they were still fighting for the right to remain in the house. Justice Parker even said that he was mystified by those instructions, but said it was up to the parties to run their case the way they wanted. The final last resort argument the Wallaces had 
was that there had been a common intention that created a constructive trust. What do I mean by this? Let's say party A and party B pool their money together and buy an investment property, and they put it in the name of party B. Then they have a falling out, and party B wants to keep the investment property for himself. Just because it is in party B's name doesn't mean that he gets to keep it all. Instead, the contribution that party A made is held on trust for party A. So it's a constructive trust that recognises that they had this common intention and they pulled their resources together, and party B shouldn't get the benefit of it. In this case, the court agreed the Wallaces had made a contribution. The property was worth 950000 but Susan only paid 840000 This meant that the Wallaces had contributed 110000 to the value of the house. Letting Susan keep it all would be unfair. The court found that she should repay the Wallaces their contribution. Susan also had to pay interest on the amount, but not at court rates, which are well above the bank rates. Instead, she was ordered to pay interest according to the Consumer Price Index. On the 26th of February 2020, this year, the court made the judgment that Susan is entitled to possession of the house and the Wallaces must move out. And the Wallaces claimed that they had an enforceable agreement and for promissory estoppel failed but their claim under common intention succeeded, and Susan was to pay them 110000 plus interest, which worked out to be about 124000 The court referred to the principle that he who seeks equity must do equity. Basically, if you're wanting the right thing to be done by you, you must also do the right thing by others. In this case, the court said that because the Wallaces were being awarded this final payment for the property, they must do equity by paying their Centrelink debt. The court ordered Susan to pay the $124,000 into court, and the court would either pay it to the Wallaces when they got confirmation that the Wallaces had paid their Centrelink debt, or the Centrelink debt would be paid from the monies held in the court. The Cost On the 5th of March, there was another court hearing to make the final orders and to make a decision about who pays the legal cost. So the court made the following orders. 1. Mr and Mrs Wallace move out within 28 days by the 2nd of April 2020. 2. Mr and Mrs Wallace to remove all their property from the house by the 2nd of April 2020. Before you think that 28 days is not long enough to pack up all their things, find another home and move there, The Wallaces had known since the 26th of February that they would be required to move themselves and their property out. 3. Mr and Mrs Wallace not to harass, intimidate, stalk or assault Suzanne or her family. 4. Suzanne to pay her parents the balance owing on the property, plus interest. In total, $124,287. It was up to the court to determine who would pay the legal fees involved in the matter. The Wallaces' position was that they had been successful, so Susan should have to pay their legal fees. The court found that the Wallaces had failed on their primary argument. They argued that at the time of transfer, Susan had promised that they could live in the house for the rest of their lives. The court found this not to be the case. The Wallaces were also seeking orders to let them remain living in the house, which, given their behaviour, the court said they would not make those orders. They were only successful on their last resort backup argument. Susan instead argued that her parents should pay her legal fees because they had refused her earlier offer to settle. This is referred to as a call-to-bank offer. If a party makes an offer to settle a matter before it goes to court, 
and the other side refuses unreasonably, especially when the offer is better than what they actually get in court, they may be ordered to pay all the legal costs that could have been avoided had they accepted that offer. There was a letter of offer dated 17th of April 2018, sent to the Wallaces. This was almost two years before the court hearings. In that letter, it offered to pay the Wallaces $200,000 to leave the house. The Wallaces had 28 days to accept the offer. Mr Wallace rejected the offer, making it clear that they wanted to continue to live in the property. The court noted that the reason the Wallaces rejected the offer was that they were not willing to settle for anything less than the right to reside, and that this expectation was unreasonable. Even the outcome of the case, that they were successful in being awarded payment of the 110000 demonstrated that they were unreasonable in holding out for the right to live in the house. Because they unreasonably refused this earlier offer of settlement, Mr and Mrs Wallace were ordered to pay Suzanne's legal fees, which her solicitors stated to be about $83,000. If they had accepted that earlier offer, they would have received $200,000. They wouldn't have spent the last two years in legal proceedings, incurring significant legal cost of their own, and they wouldn't be required to pay Susan's legal cost of $83,000. Stay of Orders Mr and Mrs Wallace applied for a stay of orders pending appeal, basically meaning that the court orders would not be upheld and that they wouldn't have to comply with them until they had had a chance to appeal the decision. In particular, they sought a stay on the orders that they vacate the unit, that they remove their property from the house in the pool, and that they pay their daughter's legal fees. Mr Wallace is 75 years old and Mrs Wallace is 80 years old, and they both have serious medical concerns. Mr Wallace had had a heart transplant 10 years prior and had leukaemia 4 years ago but was in remission. Mrs Wallace was diagnosed with a slow-growing brain tumour 4 years ago, which affected her heart and her blood pressure. They are therefore both most at risk from the COVID-19 virus. They argued that since the orders had been made, they had been self-isolating and could not move out. They also argued that there were no options for alternative accommodation available to them. However, they failed to provide any evidence that they could not live with one of their other four children, that they had even looked for accommodation, although property inspections were still being conducted, that they had looked at service departments or hotel accommodation. They also didn't provide any evidence about whether removalists were still operating. Suzanne and her family provided statements that Mr Wallace had continued to harass them and make their life difficult for them at the property since the court orders were made. On the 16th of March, Mr Wallace made an apprehended violence order against Mr Rudick and the application was dismissed. The judge was willing to grant Mr and Mrs Wallace a one-week extension of time to either move out of the property or to gather some evidence to show why they couldn't move out. The court indicated that they would allow the Wallaces this extra time if the Wallaces agreed to pay an occupation fee of $300 to Suzanne. However, Mr and Mrs Wallace were unwilling to pay this amount and didn't get the time extension. The court held that if the Wallaces were forced to move out, they could still appeal the court orders as they intended. And I quote, It might be argued that, in the circumstances of the present emergency, Mrs Rudeck and her family should be prepared to put up with the conduct described in their affidavits. But this would be to ignore the debilitating effect of what, based on the evidence before me at the hearing, was a period of years of obnoxious and aggravating conduct which the Rudecks were forced to endure. Nor, even on their own, are the complaints necessarily trivial. 
the continued prosecution of the apprehended violence order against Mr Rudick, if not properly based, could well amount to harassment contrary to the terms of the orders made by this court. End quote. The court ordered that the application was dismissed, that they would not stay the orders, and that the Wallaces were to pay Suzanne's cost. Further appeal. The Wallaces appealed the decision not to stay the orders. They made this application even though they still had not made any attempts to look for alternative accommodation. Before the appeal court, there was evidence that there was accommodation available. The steps taken by real estate agents for people to safely inspect rental properties, and there was no evidence that the Wallaces could not afford to rent. One of Susan's sons even offered to lease the Wallaces an investment property he owned in La Lourdes Park, discounted from $380 a week to $310 a week, but the Wallaces did not want to live in La Lourdes Park. The court noted that the absence of available accommodation is not grounds for granting a stay. However, any move which would require the engagement of a removalist would expose the Wallaces to increased risk of infection. While they did not adduce any evidence of how removalists might be expected to guard against infection, the appeal court found that, and I quote, requiring the appellants to move would be to increase their exposure to the risk of infection in a way which is contrary to public health policy, end quote. Wallaces gave an undertaking that, if they are unsuccessful on appeal, they will pay Suzanne the sum of $300 per week for the number of weeks they remained at the property after the 2nd of April 2020. They also undertook to remove all their goods stored in the pool area and the carport within seven days, and they will not trespass on other parts of the property. The court found, and I quote, It appears to me, with these arrangements in place, the opportunities for conflict of the kind the respondents have described should be removed, but there will be liberty to apply in case that expectation proves sanguine. End quote. That decision was on the 6th of April 2020, and that's the last we have heard of this matter, with the Wallaces still in the property until their appeal is determined. I'm a little disappointed with that final decision to let the Wallaces stay in the property until their appeal is heard. In all of the three court proceedings, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace had offered to agree not to harass Suzanne and her family and not to go onto parts of the property they weren't allowed to go onto, and yet they kept doing exactly that. I think I would feel a little bit more compassionate towards them if, one, they had made any pretense of complying with the court orders, but they had done absolutely nothing and didn't appear to have any intention of following the court orders. And two, if they had amended their behaviour to make cohabitation more bearable for their daughter and her family. Just stop verbally attacking the son-in-law and grandkids and keep to their part of the house. Easy enough to do, but they wouldn't even do that much. So, not much elder abuse in this case. Actually, it sounds like the father was quite abusive and caused a lot of the problems. The reason I like this case, apart from showing us how COVID is affecting court orders, is that this case demonstrates so well that when family arrangements break down, it really does become a case of he said, she said, and the outcome can be determined by who the court finds to be more believable. In this case, the court found Mr. Wallace to be an unreliable witness and found Susan to be much more convincing. But let's play devil's advocate and say that Mr. Wallace just didn't know how to play the game and Suzanne did. Let's say that there really was this promise that they could live in the property for the rest of their lives and that they relied entirely on it. 
There might have been conversations going on in the background saying, oh yeah, we've done this license agreement, but don't worry about that because you can live here forever. So in that case, there would have been elder abuse because the Wallaces would have relied on this promise and their daughter backed out and now they're homeless. And this case would show that it really is who can present themselves better to the court that might win the case. Not that I think there's a chance that that actually happened. I think there was a lot of evidence between the court to demonstrate the nature of the personalities of the people involved. And I do rely on the court's judgment because they had a chance to see the witnesses in person and to determine who was more believable in person. With any type of granny flat situation like this one, something as simple as writing down the agreement can save a lot of time and legal costs later. Susan's legal costs alone were $83,000. The Wallaces would have been something similar. So you're looking at about $160,000 in legal costs, not including all the time you would need to put into the legal proceedings. When I hear people complain about spending one or $2,000 to document their family arrangement, I always think if they only knew how much that $2,000 would save them down the track, especially with granny flats. A written agreement is strong evidence of what everyone was actually agreeing to. The other benefit of getting everything in writing and having everyone sign it is that you can confirm at that time that everyone is on the same page. Is this a short-term arrangement or a long-term one? What exactly are you agreeing to? What happens if someone wants to terminate the agreement? It lets everyone put down what they're thinking, and if someone looks at it and goes, oh, actually, no, I wasn't quite thinking the same thing, it gives you a chance to change the agreement or back out of it before it even happens. I have a lot more advice about how to document a family agreement, but that will do for now. The main thing is to get it in writing. Even email and text messages can be useful evidence of what parties told each other at the time. The last thing I will say about this case is the court has a difficult role in wading through different sides of the argument to find the truth. Sometimes with elder abuse cases, we can get frustrated by thinking the legal process and the courts are making a simple thing more complex than it needs to be, and are failing to protect the older person. But really, family matters are usually complex before they even begin, and if we see them as simple, then we usually don't have all the facts. In this case, on the basic facts alone, this had all the appearance of an elder abuse situation. It's only once both sides begin putting all their evidence forward that you can see how complex these situations can be and how difficult the court's job really is. That was the case of Wallace versus Rudek. The citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendation of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to me at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. That's elderservice, one word, at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. And if you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 024324 5611.